Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. So I want to talk to you, my lovely and curious listeners, today about anger. It's a very difficult concept for a lot of us, especially those who are Christians. We know the scripture that says, in your anger, do not sin. People who pay a good deal of attention to the language there can see that it doesn't say don't get angry. It says in your anger, do not sin, taking for granted that we will get angry. Just be careful what you do. I myself have never had much trouble with anger. Certainly I've made mistakes, as we all have. But I never felt that it was wrong. And I found that instinct to be quite accurate. There are various forms that anger can take. I'll be talking about those. Defining different terms, not by the dictionary definition of things, but with a sort of working definition. I find that those are a great deal more helpful, because if you just look up the dictionary definition of things, very often all you're getting is synonyms. You're not seeing really the nuances in closely related but still disparate words. And I think it's more helpful to not try to just get the correct or highly intellectualized version or definition of various words. But if we can find the nuances, if we can find the little differences, we can understand a little bit better how to behave or how to differentiate between slightly different things, even if those things are very slight. But whatever the case, when it comes to something as volatile and, and, yes, potentially dangerous as anger, we have a tendency to think that even if we get angry at all, we've already done wrong. I'll get into a little bit more about what that might be connected to in a little while. Why it is. Not necessarily, as I already mentioned, because of scripture or other things, but so many people think that it is wrong to be angry in itself, and why is that? If it's not true, why is that? Why do people have that instinct? So let's, ju- let's jump into some definitions, and I'm also going to be talking about what anger and its, and its different forms mean in the sense of what they do, what they say. What is the statement that these different emotions or emotional reactions are really making? So what I'm going to be talking about is anger, of course, and then also rage and wrath. By the way, I don't believe personally that wrath is even a sin. How could it be? If you're a Christian, you, we of all people should not be believing that wrath is a sin. Why do I say that? Well, if wrath is a sin, then God is sinned. We know that he has had wrath. And we're not just talking about God the Father here, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus did wrathful things. Take, for example, when he whipped the uh, the, uh, money exchangers in front of the temple. I'll be getting into it a little bit more in a bit, but that was a wrathful act. And I'll explain why I think so. So if wrath is a deadly sin, as we call it, God sinned. That's not compatible. Not at all. So, let me start with anger. Now, anger is fairly easily defined, you know, it's when the blood boils a little bit, when we tend to raise our voices, when we might get rather defensive, maybe even aggressive. But I think it's a bit more helpful to ask the question, what does anger do? What does it say? In my opinion, anger always says, this must stop. What do I mean by that? Well, going back to the example of Jesus with the money exchangers in front of the temple, he goes in there saying that they're profaning the temple which I think he was quite right about, not just because they were exchanging money, but because they were cheating people. This was a well-known practice at the time. 
you came without money, but you came with livestock to sell, they realized that it was a pretty lucrative opportunity to swindle people. Well, obviously, swindling right in front of the holy place is not something that God himself looked very kindly upon. But going back to the topic of anger, what did Jesus do? He stopped them. <laughs> he stopped them quite vehemently, quite directly, aggressively. Or how about when we get upset because a child has become extremely belligerent, or especially if it's in a public place? Now, we might hold it in quite a bit. I mean, of course, I'm talking about if we're the parent, right? We're the ones responsible, we know it, and if they're making a huge raucous, well, we're the ones that are responsible for keeping the peace, shall we say. So, we don't just want to silence the child because the child is troubled. We want to silence the child because this is causing a ruckus at the supermarket or whatever the case may be. So, our anger rises up saying, this child must stop raising a ruckus. Not, not really trying to argue the justness of that kind of activity or anything, but that's the kind of thing that rises up. Or let's say that you're a very morally minded person and you see a good friend of yours talking about planning doing something that would be quite wrong and foolish. Well, you're probably going to get a little bit angry or a lot a bit angry. And what will you want to do? Stop them! So that's what I think anger really does and it's what it really says. And therefore, I find it rather neutral. It's neither inherently good or evil. And I don't think any of these things are, by the way. But it can be quite clearly used constructively or wrongly. It can be used to even encourage the good or discourage the good. Let's use a different example. How about somebody who is extremely competent in conversation? and really wants to dig into other people, their feelings, their honest selves. And I'm not talking about in some, you know, uh, manipulative way, but honestly, like they really want to connect with people. And I'm using this example because this applies to me quite a bit. Uh, I'm well, I've trained myself quite a bit in this, and I am genuinely interested in who people really are. So let's say that you're engaging in conversation, maybe with a new acquaintance, somebody who you find pretty interesting. And you begin to get the sense, whether it's, you know, kind of in, in your conscious mind or subconsciously, viscerally, you start to notice that this person has some defensive walls or a facade or maybe some arrogance. And those sorts of things keep you, the person who's trying to engage with this, this acquaintance, from seeing the person as they really are, seeing the real person behind. There could be a variety of reasons why those defenses are there. A lot of times it has to do with upbringing and the defensive structures that they learn to put up in order to essentially survive a very bad upbringing in many cases. Anger, frustration in you, the speaker, trying to reach this person, will rise up in those cases. I know I've experienced it. And that in and of itself is very justifiable. You want to get to know this person. You're seeing these walls in the way. It's like Joan of Arc trying to get through the walls of Paris to free Paris from tyranny. Well, maybe not tyranny, but the rule of the English. You want to get through to what you truly want, and there's something barring your way. You get angry at that thing barring your way. You want it to stop. Stop what? Stop barring your way. Stop preventing you from getting in. Now, what you do with that after anger begins to rise up, and I'm not talking about hot, boiling anger, and some one of some of the people who have trouble with anger are those who, you know, basically have no in-between. They go from 
tepid to boiling in no time. But having the right response is going to have to do a lot with your social disciplines. If you have good tact and good practice in encouraging a person, guiding a person, helping another person to remove their facades, remove their walls. And personally, I think that that is a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. And in those cases, and I've, I've heard it and seen it done, genuine anger can rise up. And it could be used constructively, and it could be used to help the other person open. Maybe not in that conversation. But the communication of anger in that case is your walls, your facades, if it's done well, right? Your arrogance or pride is not good. The anger is delivering that message. You are, through your anger, telling the other person, this must stop. Now, of course, if you get too angry, if you fly off the handle, you might be engaging the other person's trauma response. They might have had a parent or an uncle or a teacher who is way too boiling hot angry anytime they got frustrated and might have unjustly punished that person. So if you get too angry, if you don't keep yourself under control, then even if you haven't done something wrong, you might go too far, engage the other person's defensive responses, and do something very unhelpful in that circumstance. But that doesn't mean that the anger was bad. Your response to your anger was bad. How angry you allowed yourself to get over the other person's facades and walls and so on was overbearing too much. So that's a brief introduction to anger. Let's go to... Oh, and before I move on, I wanted to mention something which I think is very important. Um, God himself. How often do we see God get angry? We certainly saw Jesus get angry and frustrated, especially with his disciples. How is it that you still don't understand these things, he would say? He would get mildly frustrated sometimes, even when... Peter was trying to walk on water. Oh, you of little faith. Now, that's not necessarily getting angry, but it's certainly a form of anger and a form of frustration, which I'm not going to go into in detail. I think we get that one pretty well, generally speaking. But people can misuse that too, for sure. Justify themselves for doing some pretty stupid things because they're, quote, frustrated or disappointed. Anyway, but the God... God the Father that is himself. We certainly see him angry. In fact, if you read the prophecies and many of the books of the Old Testament, it describes God as getting angry. Now, if anger is so dangerous, so bad, then why would the Holy God himself get angry? It doesn't make any sense to me. And if you read carefully and understand where God is coming from. You can see that God's anger never leads to something unconstructive. It may lead to destruction, but that destruction itself might be weeding out evil among the Israelites or a foreign nation of some kind. No, God never used his anger to be just plainly destructively in the sense of doing actual evil. His anger was helpful. His anger was constructive. But one thing to keep in mind about the anger of God is that he never lost his head about it. He never lost his own control. Now Jesus whips and overturns the tables of the money changers. But he doesn't then end up doing something that gets him incarcerated either by the religious authorities or by the Roman authorities. He certainly did something very dramatic, but he didn't overstep the bounds. Now, maybe in modern day, 
if you were to do that sort of thing, that would have gotten you in trouble. But clearly, he didn't do anything that actually broke the laws of the time. The only laws he broke were non-laws. They were the oral tradition of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Let's take a specific instance with God the Father. God is talking to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, and the Israelites have set up a golden calf after Moses has been gone for a good while. They're like, oh no, he's clearly gone. What do we do? Hey, let's set up an idol. God says specifically to Moses, I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to set up a nation through you, Moses. To which Moses replies in an understandable uh, bit of despair and surprise. Hey, you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would build a nation through them. And if you do this, Egypt and other nations are going to hear about it. And they're going to say that God brought Israel out of Egypt just to destroy them. That was his plan the whole time. And if you really think about it, it's quite astonishing. God goes, huh. You make a pretty good point. And obviously I'm not quoting the scriptures here, but just kind of trying to put a bit of a mood, uh, get the mood of it. Jesus is white hot, angry. So let's try to see this from God's perspective. He'd just gotten the Israelites out of Egypt, away from people who had abused them, treated them as slaves. He gets them out with Miraculous power, sending plagues on the Egyptians. Brings them out, crossing through Red Sea on dry land as he split the water. Losing wind like a leaf blower on a little puddle. Read it. Talks, Talks about the wind. He brings them out. And all he really wants is fidelity. All he really wants is loyalty to himself. You say, oh, but he puts a bunch of laws on them. I get that. But the laws, the moral statutes, really all they're saying is this is the stuff of having fidelity to me, having loyalty to me. What do they do? Well, Moses goes up on a mountain, talking with God. The cloud up there probably never went away. I know God is still up there. He's gone for about 40 days, and they're like, well, guess he's gone. Moses and God, they're just, they're just gone. So we're going to make our own God. To get God's perspective a little bit on this, as much as we can anyway, compare that to your guy and... You meet this wonderful, lovely woman, but for whatever reason, she's dating a complete asshole. She's dating a guy who verbally abuses her, maybe even physically abuses her a little bit. And you get to be her friend, and gradually she's convinced to get rid of that guy, and she starts dating you eventually. And she's so grateful, you're so much better... You don't hit her, you don't yell at her, you don't call her names. And then let's say you have to leave for about a month. You're still in contact, you're still obviously there. You can text her, you can call her, she can call you, she can text you. You come back after a month and you find out that she's dating some idiot again, dating some jerk, different guy. The one who yells at her, calls her names. Doesn't that piss you off? So yeah, God's kind of pissed off. And yet when Moses argues with him, he doesn't totally relent, the Bible points out, he was still angry. Anger didn't go away. But the punishment was very much reduced. The consequences were reduced. Compare that to another relationship situation in a family. Let's say that a father wants to move. He considers it to be for the good of the family. He's already talked to his wife. She's okay with it, but a little concerned what it will do with the children. So he goes to his seven-year-old son. 
And his son says, ah, I, I really don't want to. I've got good friends. I like my school. I like this place. I don't want to go away. I'll have to start again from scratch. Now, in many cases, a father in that kind of situation may become irate. He considers the choice that he wants to make to be, again, to the good of the family. And he may be right, but in this kind of a case, it could be justification. For him to say, how dare you, child, try to prevent me from doing what's good for the family. You're preventing what's good, which means what you're doing is bad. I'm not saying it would come out like that. That's being a little bit more honest than the situation would probably appear to be. He might not get angry. Maybe he'll just, you know, sweet talk the boy until he essentially relents. But a good dad, I mean a much more understanding and patient and listening dad, might hear him out and go, yeah. Considering, you know, looking from your perspective, taking my adult self and putting them in your shoes, I can see that would be essentially tearing apart a good portion of your life. You're seven. You only know your family and everything that you've established up to this point in friendships, school, play. And yeah, that's, that's really tough. Let me think about that. That's a really good point, son. And he might change his mind entirely, or he might change at least some of the particulars to try to accommodate his son's objections. Well, God is dealing with a much more difficult circumstance here. He's dealing with complete betrayal. After using a great deal of power to bring an entire people out of Egypt. And yet he's patient, listens to Moses, who's infinitely less powerful than he is. Power differential between a son and a father, especially a very young son, is pretty great, but it's far greater when you're talking about a human to God. So if we're going to look at God as a father, even when he's angry, white-hot angry, and for good reason, he's far better than many fathers, earthly fathers. He's patient and he listens. So the reason why I wanted to bring up the fact that God does not lose his cool, God does not lose, that is, his control, even when he's extremely angry, is the next word, rage. Rage. What it says is, I must get out of this situation. And I'll build that. In other words, it's a fight-or-flight kind of response, particularly when you choose the fight option. Rage is a cornered animal that chooses to respond with aggression. You've fallen out of control of the situation. Your option to run may not even be there. Whatever the case, you choose fight. You choose aggression. Once again, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, but the reason why I just went through God doesn't lose his control is that God, by this definition, ever rages. Now, I don't therefore consider it a bad thing that humans must rage or do rage from time to time because the category is very different. God, if he ever were out of control, the universe itself might spin into chaos. Whereas we can very logically fall out of control, and it's okay in the general sense. But when we know that we are out of control, and our only option, or our best option, or the option that we choose is aggression, that's rage. There's fear in it, so to speak. So let me bring up a bad example of rage. A bad or irresponsible example of rage could be, let's use a five-year-old girl 
talking to her mother. And her younger three-year-old brother started playing with one of her toys without her permission. And she wanted to play with it. Now, many of us know how children can be. Maybe she wasn't even thinking about that toy until her brother picked it up and started playing with it. But whatever the case, it's her toy. So she goes to mom. And she's crying and she's a bit angry and yelling a bit. I mean, you know, she's a five-year-old girl. She's still trying to figure out how to human. She's new to this world, only five years. So we can't really expect her, we can't really expect her to have a great grasp of her emotions. But here, something very troubling can happen in many families. Again, she might, the daughter might be yelling, crying, both. And the mom responds in anger herself. She doesn't like the situation. She doesn't like the yelling and crying. She doesn't like the dispute between her children. It's supposed to, everything's supposed to be fine, good, and the children are supposed to get along. And anger starts coming up. She wants to do what does anger do? Stop it. But why am I using this as an example of rage? Well, if that mom, when she was a little girl, grew up in a household where her mom was very much the same, very much the same way in the sense of responding with anger and even rage whenever there was some kind of a dispute that she happened to very much dislike. She might scream. She might hurl insults. She might call her children evil using some moral justification. Now, if that was the mom's growing up years, she lived in a household that was dominated by the tyranny of her mother's emotions. It's not uncommon, unfortunately. And if that mom has not done a great deal of looking into self-knowledge, figuring out how she ticks, what it is that might trigger her, or bring up a trauma response, then she is used to being completely powerless when someone is yelling at her, crying in front of her. That crying is just an excuse to manipulate. Now, I'm not saying that's grandma's actual intention. She probably had a mother herself who was very much the same way, or father in some cases. And that's how these things reproduce and reproduce. The intention is very seldom to manipulate, but that is what people do, and that is important. Actions do speak louder than words. So the mom, again, who's listening to her young daughter, who's crying and yelling, remembers when she was completely powerless, and I don't mean remembers actively, I mean rather subconsciously and viscerally, remembers when she was powerless before somebody who was yelling and crying. And now the power differential is quite a bit different. When she was little, she could do nothing. She was absolutely helpless in front of this situation. But now when it's her daughter doing it, and that's triggered, she herself rages. Meaning what? Meaning that she does what her mother had done. She might insult. She might scream. She might call her daughter bad and try to bring up some punishment, which brings us into wrath for a second there, but we're talking about rage right now. And that's terrible. Who really is, in the, is the child in that situation? Who really doesn't have control of their emotions Obviously, the child is expected to eventually control her emotions, but certainly the mother by now should. And I understand, I sympathize. Obviously, we're not talking about somebody real, but very often it comes through childhood trauma and not dealing with that trauma. And it's an easy thing for people to miss. But certainly that kind of an emotional response is out of proportion to the situation. 
Anyways, I'm digressing a bit, but the point is, she remembers that helplessness. She remembers when she would, had no control over the situation. So she rages at a little girl. It's terrible. And that's rage in the bad sense. So what is rage in the good sense? When is rage a good thing? Okay, now let's take a father, also with a daughter. And a dog, unleashed, just comes strolling up. She's playing in the yard. The dad is mowing or something, doing some yard work. And suddenly the dog just goes ballistic. Starts attacking the daughter. The dad is out of control of the situation. What's his response? I must get out of this situation, or to be a bit more precise, I must get my daughter out of this situation, which has now become my situation because she's my daughter, and I, guard, I protect her. So you are going to take on that dog, and you might kill it. That's rage. And that's good rage. Yes, it's destructive. But it's being used for a very good purpose. And to a point, yes, the dad's probably going to be, quote, out of control. But he's not totally out of control. Think about it. If he was totally out of control, I mean completely out of control, he would probably hurt the daughter just as much as the dog. There's still some control, but the situation is one that is out of, out of his control initially, and he fights to re-establish control. See, the mother who's out of, who doesn't control her own emotions well and manipulates, whether she directly intends to or not, is trying to do the same thing. Rage is the attempt to re-establish control. Out of control initially, defenseless, or the daughter, in the case of the father, defenseless. And your rage is directed towards trying to re-establish control. That's why there's fear. That's why there's powerlessness at the front of it. Rage. The fight response in fight or flight. Is it good? Is it bad? Neither. Depends on how you're using it. Depends on how much character you have with the rage. It's not a situation we, anybody wants to be in, but sometimes it is good. It's hard for modern people to think of it that way. So let's visit wrath for a little while. Wrath. Always says this. The evil must be destroyed. So let's look first at God's examples of wrath. It makes it the clearest, but there are some very subtle ones I'll be bringing up in a minute. When God is wrathful, he is destroying often people in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, Jesus is destroying the business of the money changers. Why? Because they're doing evil. The Israelites make a golden calf. Several thousand of them are dead by the end of that story. The Israelites, much later, during the time of the kings, continuously abandon and abandon and abandon God again, in spite of being God's chosen people, they were supposed to take that seriously. They don't. God takes a long time. And finally, there's wrath. And in that case, he uses King Nebuchadnezzar to administer the wrath. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, it's God's wrath. Nebuchadnezzar probably wasn't destroying them because of their evil, but God sure was. He made it clear through the prophets. And once again, if wrath was a sin, then God sins. That doesn't make any sense. And see, 
we like to think of wrath as one of the seven deadly sins because we think that that level of destruction for the sake of justice is only the territory of God. We're not thinking very much. Let me show why. Let's go back to the example of the mother with her daughter. Now, whatever it is that the mother would have done in some sort of retribution or punishment for her daughter making her upset, she would have used a moral justification, more than likely, you're a bad girl. Wait until your father gets home. She hasn't been a bad girl. She's crying because her own toy was taken without her permission. That's property rights at a young age. Now, her behavior might not be approved of, especially if there is already an agreement that such toys should be shared. But in that case, you simply instruct her and everything's fine, hopefully. Hopefully you continue to reinforce a good lesson, sharing. But if you call her bad because you can't handle your own emotional response to her weeping and yelling, then you're calling something bad which is not bad. And your response to that, wait until your father gets home. What are you trying to do? Punish what you are justifying as bad. Your justification is that this is evil. So when dad gets home, wrath. That's, what, that's the proper definition of what's going on, at least based on the way I'm using the words, and I think it's pretty good. So dad gets home. Mother says however many details she gives, I'm probably changing the story a good deal. Your daughter made me upset. Now, if as a woman of this sort, maybe there is some instinct in the father that this woman, this her, his wife, flies off the handle, and this probably isn't really the situation, but does he want to deal with that situation? Does he want to call her out on very likely lying, overblowing the situation? If he does, what's she going to do? Yell at him? Most likely. Insult him? Probably use the excuse that he's not being the man of the house because he's failing to administer justice and punish the children for being bad. Or maybe he totally buys it. In which case, we have wrath not just coming from mother, but also coming from the father. You did something bad. You upset your mother. So, maybe a spanking, maybe worse. And I said that wrath is destroying evil. Well, there's actually two ways in which that is happening in this circumstance. One, you're destroying what you label as a bad behavior. You spank in order to, or whatever it is that you do, discourage that behavior in the future. You're trying to destroy a behavior. Now, that is actually true physically in the case of spanking. This has been shown in research. When a child is spanked or given physical pain for a behavior, mental pathways break down. They're actually destroyed. Neurons are destroyed in the brain. Now, I'm not saying that that necessarily means that this is a bad thing. Destruction can be constructive. If what you're destroying is something rotten. If you're destroying is something damaging, like a cancer. No, destruction can be used very well. And of course, we know this instinctively, more or less, actually happens. Why? Because... If we make a massive mistake, or if we face pain, whether emotional or physical, from doing some particular action, then of course we don't want to do it again. What's happening in the brain in that circumstance? Well, we're probably cutting off and removing those neural pathways. 
so that we can form new ones. This happens in the brain all the time. Old connections are broken down, new connections are made, especially as we're growing. So if the father is saying, you did something bad, you made your mother upset, and hits the child. That is by the definition that I'm using, wrath. But wrath certainly can be used well, can it not? Human beings are not incapable of understanding justice. Morality, ethics, we're very capable of understanding it. But it must be universalized. We have to apply it to ourselves just as much as anybody else, especially including children. Think about it. The father and mother that are doing this to the daughter in this situation are teaching her to consider bad something that may be completely innocent, something that may be justifiable. If the daughter had been told in the past that that's her toy and she's not obliged to share it. And then this incident occurs, that's hip- that's hypocritical. They're not teaching her that it's bad to not share. They're teaching the daughter that it's bad to make mom uncomfortable. That's the message that's being shared. People that grow up like that, for some reason, have a whole lot of trouble with crying women. Gee, I wonder why. But again, as I was saying earlier, wrath can be used well. Jesus and the money changers. When Jesus is taking their industry out, he's removing cheating from the place right in front of his father's house. Or how about in our own justice systems when it's actually carried out correctly? See, wrath doesn't necessarily have to have anger in it in the moment of carrying out the wrath. An evil thing must be destroyed. There's certainly connection with anger. We get angry about things that are unjust. There's a good reason why I'm using illustrations with family doing right and wrong things so much. See, I grew up in a pretty good family. I give it a solid 7 out of 10, well above average. But as I've become an adult, I've seen so many examples of families that are physically abusive in some cases, more often than not, more often than that, psychologically abusive, emotionally abusive, and morally abusive. I've seen it all, and I've heard far more stories than that. That makes me angry. See the five-head move that I'm doing here? Talking about anger, using illustrations that legitimately make me angry. Legitimately make me angry. See, I have a sense of wrath, so to speak. Had I the right, I could, but it's more just anger. Upon the horrors that many families have been and still are, I want to do what anger does. I want it to stop. And that doesn't mean that I rage against it. Rather, that means that I try to instruct, I try to help, I try to reveal hard truths. It's actually connected with this whole talk about anger. Revealing the truths about anger can actually start flipping some of these abusive situations on their head. And I'll get to that at the end. So I'm digressing again. Let's go back to how can wrath be used well? Well, again, in our justice system. 
say that you're a judge. And you're adjudicating over a case where a man both raped and then murdered a woman. You're not connected to the situation at all. We know this in our justice system, if you're familiar with it. If you actually know the people, you recuse yourself. You get out of the, out of the case. Like I said, wrath does not have to have anger in it in the moment or even an emotional connection to the situation. But you're probably going to be, if you're a moral judge, a morally minded judge, you're going to be pretty peeved, to put it mildly, at the fact that a man raped and then murdered a woman. And if it's well proven that he did, beyond a good shadow, sorry, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the response is wrath. You're not the one. You're not the one specifically carrying it out, right? Like when God sent Nebuchadnezzar. But you're seeing that wrath is carried out for the sake of justice, destruction, evil, for justice. We don't like to talk about it very much because we're all talking about how wrath is one. Of, wrath is one of the seven deadly sins. No, we actually use wrath on a pretty regular basis. We need wrath as human beings. We need to have that sense, knowing that genuine evil must be destroyed in order to have a just society, in order to have peace. People have sold out to doing horrid things, atrocious things. must be stopped. Anger. If we're in the moment of it, we need to get out of the situation and reestablish control. Rage. We must destroy evil. Wrath. So as I said at the beginning and hinted just a moment ago, why is it? Why is it that so many people have so much trouble with anger? Why do we tend to think that it's bad? I've been hinting about it all through this. For so many of us, we grew up in families where our elders, probably our parents, essentially taught us through their actions and the ways that they punished us and abused us in many cases that we are never allowed to be angry. If we're ever upset about something, that's bad. Why? Because that's justice? Because that's moral? No. Because it makes the parents uncomfortable. And if the child was really allowed to be legitimately angry, the parent or parents might have to dig into their own souls and do some self-knowledge and realize their own weakness and why it's there. Go back to their parenting, or how they were parented, rather. So when we've essentially had our own legitimate upsets and frustrations and disappointments ground to the dust with punishments and calling us bad, any time we got upset, any time we got justifiably angry, then we were taught it's bad to be angry. And therefore, of course, we're not going to ever want to rage because that's anger out of our control. Again, not 100% out of our control. It depends. And we certainly don't want to administer wrath because there's anger there too, at least at some point. To stop cycles of abuse, we need to have anger. Administer it well, with character, and still have patience, be willing to listen. We need to be willing to look inside of ourselves sometimes, often in fact. Have a really good grasp on morality 
and ethics. Administer them universally, including towards ourselves. So we can cut this cycle. Think about it. Think how wonderful it would be. You're a parent. Your child is angry. And you listen. Instead of just judging them. So you're going to be afraid of your child's anger if you're also afraid of your own anger. And just like God on Mount Sinai, listen to the child and actually weigh whether or not they have a good point. Deal with situations the hard way. Actually think about it. Soberly. Allow children sometimes to teach you things. And of course, this applies to a lot of different things in life. Not just children, but that's you know just my favorite example in this. So in conclusion. Anger, rage, wrath. Are they bad? Nope. Are they evil? Nope. Can they be used badly and to do evil things? They are all the time. But they are not inherently evil. They are potentially evil. So I hope this has been interesting for everybody. I'm going to sign off for today. Have a good one.